threefold Sunday morning. I say that every week, I feel like, but I love spring, so. Um, it's good to be with you all. Uh, if you want to stand with me this morning, we will begin this morning with our call to worship. And this call to worship comes from the book of Zechariah, where we see this promise in the Old Testament um, of God coming to dwell with his people. And as this morning in our text, we'll look at the incarnation of the Son of God, and we'll see hints of that here this morning in our call to worship. This great promise of God coming to dwell with his people. And I was reminded that that's what's happening here this morning, that when we come together, God has promised to meet with his people. And so may that be a great comfort for us this morning as we begin. So I'll read the bold section if you'll read after me the non-bold. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has aroused himself from his holy dwelling. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to him, 2.16 will sing, My hope is built on nothing less. Yeah, it's all about. And I was reminded again this morning of, you know, we sing out of a hymnal, it might feel a bit antiquated to some, but these great songs are songs worth singing, right? Amen. They're not superficial uh, or shallow, but they are songs that we can sing in the most extreme suffering in our life and also the most extreme rejoicing. So we'll remember that today. So sing together with us. Bye. 
Turn with me to hymn number 224. We will sing before the throne.
there every Sunday, a reminder of, of what we've come out of, the sinfulness that we, we've come out of. But we're not left there. We're, we're offered hope. We're offered assurance of the pardon that we so desperately need. And in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that though we are unworthy, You've adopted us before the foundations of the world, Lord. You found favor on us. You put your favor on us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for that. So undeservedly, we receive with gratefulness and thanksgiving the grace that you poured out on us. Father, I want to lift up families who are hurting right now, Lord. We thank you for Alyssa and Drew. Uh, Zach being here at the Drews this morning, and Father, just continue to minister to her and, and their, her family, Father. Thank you for the balm that only you can provide, Lord, that can bring healing, Lord, to our hurting hearts. Thank you for answering prayer to business needs. Thank you, Lord, for just our families, this, this wonderful group of young families, for the health of the little ones, for healthy pregnancies. Lord, we just thank you, Father, for everything that you have given us. Lord, I want to lift up, uh, especially today, Lord, a, a good friend of mine, Dave Ellis. He goes by Doc. His... Uh, His treatments that he's been doing the past five years are, are not working anymore, Lord. And, and the cancer is now uh, overtaking his body. And Father, we just we thank you for that extended time that we've had with him. And that you would uh, minister to that family as they're looking at uh, probably the end of his life here soon. So just lift up this family, Lord, as well. Lift up my cousin, Linda. Thank you for being with her. Anyone else who is here, Lord, this morning, who's, who's not uh, brought forth uh, the needs, Lord, you know the needs. And we just rest in your, in your love, in your loving arms, and ask that you would minister according to your will. In Jesus' name. Amen. So in our Orthodox Catechism this morning, question number 34. I know I've said it before, but I hope I love this, this question-answer format. I love this format to where questions that maybe you have thought before and maybe questions you never thought of before. And they ask these questions, and then they give a biblical answer, and they give you a, an answer from the Word of, of why the answer is what it is. This question is, what do you believe when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit? <laughs> And born of the Virgin Mary. Would you read with me the answer? That the Son of God, who is and continues true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, 
through the working of the Holy Spirit, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin except. Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. Well, good morning again. It's a joy to be with you all. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll be looking today at verse 14 in John's Gospel, and actually over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> We were picking up steam there for a little bit, and uh, we had to slow down again. <laughs> um, so we've been going through John's prologue. We've been looking at chapter 1 of John's Gospel, and specifically these first 18 verses, where we've kind of talked about it as John's overture, his beginning that sets up all these themes for the rest of the Gospel. And that's why we're spending a little bit more time here than we might have otherwise, because if we don't understand what John's saying at the beginning, these themes that he's setting up, then when he develops them later, it'll be harder to understand the depth and the knowledge that he's trying to convey as we go throughout the gospel. And so we come today to John 1.14. And what we've seen before is that this word, this word, this logos, was in the beginning with God. Eternal, uncreated yet distinct from the Father, as we talked about the Trinity and some of the doctrinal things there. And we also see in John's Gospel that not only is the Word eternal, not only is the Word distinct from the Father, but the Word is God. The Word is divine. And we've seen John has gone out of his way to tell us all these things about the Word, that the Word is a light, the Word is life of men, all these great and wonderful things. And so when we come today to the verses that we're going to look at, or the verse rather, in John 1.14, it should feel a little shocking to us, what John's about to say, what we're going to read this morning. It should sort of cause us to have some questions, to ask some difficult, hard questions, and hopefully as we go through the text this morning, those will become clear, because what John is going to say is one of the most important things one of the greatest acts that God did in history, namely the sufferings, the incarnation and glory of Christ. That this issue that we're going to talk about, this idea of the incarnation, is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. That there is no Christianity without Christ. <laughs> it's self-evident, right? But there is no Christianity without the incarnate Christ. And maybe even bigger than that, and more than that, that this question of the incarnation, what is happening in John 1, verse 14, is really trying to answer one of the biggest questions throughout all the scriptures, is how is a holy God going to dwell with the sinful people? How is a holy God going to dwell with and save a sinful people? And we'll see the answer to that in John this morning. So if you want to turn with me to verse 14, I'll read the passage, I'll pray for us, and then we'll study God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for John's gospel, that it was written for us, for our benefit, that we might not be left to our own devices, but that you have revealed yourself to us in your holy and infallible word, and we have a great hope that we're not left to be blown by every wind and wave of doctrine, but you've given us your word, written it down, so that we might have a sure and steadfast anchor. And as we come to your word this morning, even though there's many mysterious things, there are things that our fallen minds cannot fully comprehend. At the end of the day, Lord, you have given us this um, so that we might confess the truth in it and be reminded of the great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, Though we might be distracted or overcome by sin or suffering in our life, may you cause us to turn our eyes to you by faith, to the risen incarnate Christ. And may we have great assurance this morning that for all those that put their faith in him, there's no other hope. And we have a great hope this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, kids are smart. <laughs> kids are really smart. They're a lot smarter than we give them credit for. Uh, I don't know if you guys do this with your kids, if you have kids, but, you know, sometimes after dinner, maybe your kids were not as good as they should have been, and so they don't get a treat that night. And they're playing in the other room, and you go into the kitchen, and you sneak a bite of a piece of chocolate or something, and you come out into the other room, and you're chewing on it, and my daughter will always ask me, Daddy, what's in your mouth? <laughs> she knows. Right? She doesn't even have to guess. She knows that, that I've snuck a piece of chocolate or something. Or maybe, but they're smart in other ways. They don't just see what we do. They also think about the things that we do. They're very smart. You know, I don't know why all my analogies have to do with food, maybe because I'm hungry right now. But, you know, but you'll, you'll, have a, you'll give them a piece of dessert or a piece of cake or whatever it is, and they always wonder why you get a little bit more than them. Why do you, Daddy, why do you get two and I only get one? <laughs> They're always thinking about these things. Why is the world the way it is? Why are the things the way that they are? And I've been talking to some of you, and some of you have been wanting to do these catechism questions for your kids. Maybe not the ones that we do here, but they have a lot of children's catechisms. There's several different resources that you can get, and actually I'd like to get some for our book table back there, but... They're very simple questions. I've told you guys about some of them. The first question is, who made you? God. What else did God make? Everything. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. And so the catechism is simple like that, that a child can understand. And as it goes, it gets to this question about, what is God? And the answer that the cate catechism gives is, God is a spirit and does not have a body. But we do. So it's getting kids to understand this distinction that God is spirit, that he doesn't have a body, but they do. And so they see this creator-creature distinction. But as you go, right, you're teaching your kids about Jesus. That he died on the cross for sinners like us. That Jesus was God. 
And then inevitably, <laughs> the day will come when your kid asks you the question, does that mean Jesus wasn't God? If Jesus had a body, but Jesus is God, does that mean Jesus was not God? Or we could say it other ways. I thought God didn't have a body. Does that mean Jesus isn't God? If God does not have a body, how can Jesus be God? Your kids will ask you this question, and they're getting to the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning, what we call the incarnation. The incarnation. So as we get into this this morning, maybe our kids have already asked this question. Maybe we ourselves are asking a lot of questions. What does the incarnation mean? If Jesus is God, and God doesn't have a body, how is this possible? And so there's a lot of questions that come up. First off is, what is the incarnation? What does it mean? Secondly, does it, does it mean that Jesus stopped being God for a season? When he took on flesh, did he stop being God? Why did the Son of God have to take on flesh? Why was that important? Was it just sort of an arbitrary decision, or was it necessary? What did Christ accomplish in his humanity? Why did he have to take on flesh? Why was that necessary? What did he come to accomplish? And maybe most practically is what does that have to do with us 2,000 years later, right? We're in this room, we're in Decatur, Illinois. What does that have to do with us, what Jesus did 2,000 years ago? So over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at John chapter 1, verse 14. And we're going to talk about the person of Christ and the work of Christ. The person of Christ, who he is, as Redeemer, as Messiah, as promised in the Old Testament, and we're also going to talk about the work of Christ, or what he came to do, his mission. What did he come to accomplish? And so we'll look at this week the person of Christ, and next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up on, more specifically, the work of Christ. And so our text this morning... Very simply, in that first clause, reads this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That this should be shocking. <laughs> it should be absolutely shocking. That John has been very careful up to this point in his Gospel, in the prologue, to make something very clear. That the Word is God. That the Word is God. That the Word is divine. That the Word is unchanging. But he's also been very clear to make another point, and that is that the Word is not created. Remember in verse 3, he, he says it both positively and negatively. He says, all things that were made were made through him, and not anything that was made was not made by, or, <laughs> was made by him. He's going out of his way to say that the Word is uncreated. And so in verse 14, when John says that the Word took on flesh, this should shock us. Is John contradicting himself? Is the question that my four-year-old brings up, is, is she on to something, right? Has she figured out something that theologians for millennium have not figured out? Is she on to something? No, this is what we call the mystery of the incarnation. The mystery of the incarnation, that the second person of the triune God, the Son of God, in the fullness of time, took on flesh. Took on flesh. Took on a human nature. Was born of a woman. Born of the Virgin Mary. 
that the eternal, uncreated Word took on flesh, took on, entered into the created order. That the second person of the triune God, who was in heaven with the Father, worshipped by the angels in eternal bliss, humbled himself, emptied himself, is what Philippians says, to the form of a servant. And that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly Emmanuel, God with us. This is what we mean when we say the Incarnation. And so not, not only for John's listeners, but even for us, we can even think to ourselves, is John just sort of making this up, this idea of the Word taking on flesh? Is this John's invention? This is what many critics will say, is John is sort of inventing this. He's not one of the synoptic Gospels, and so he's just sort of making this up, or whatever. But we can say with confidence... Like Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, what did he say to Nicodemus? Are you a teacher of the law, and yet you don't know these things? Meaning that this incarnation, the sufferings and glory of Christ were promised in the Old Testament. That this was not a new thing. John was not inventing something new. He was not creating something false. He was saying with clarity the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. And many of you know where I'm going to go next. If you don't, you should. <laughs> where am I going to go? The garden, right? In Genesis chapter 3, what does the Bible tell us? That the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. This great promise within a curse that one will come from a woman that will destroy the works of the devil. That's all the way in the third chapter of our Bible. Way back here. Genesis goes on to talk about Abraham. That one will come from Abraham that will bless the nations. That will bless the nations. We see it narrowed down even further. Not only from Adam, not only from Abraham, but from David. That one will sit on David's throne forever. He'll have a kingdom that will last forever. That's very interesting. And then we come to what many call the fifth gospel, the gospel of Isaiah. <laughs> Why do they call it a gospel of Isaiah? Because it's so Christocentric. It's looking forward to this coming Messiah. And Isaiah uses this language of a virgin shall conceive and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So again, this language of someone coming from a woman, being born, and being called God with us. In Isaiah chapter 9, we see that those that walked in darkness will see a great light, for unto us a son is born, and he will be called Almighty Counselor, Almighty God. That this child that's going to be born is going to be called God. That's pretty amazing to think about. And then it really cranks up at the end of Isaiah, around verse, or chapter 40, where he starts bringing this language of a servant. That's one, one is going to come, the servant of the Lord, that's going to be given the word and the spirit without measure, and it's going to come and accomplish all God's purposes. He's going to be a light to the nation. This servant is also referred to as being high and lifted up which is language that is only used in Isaiah of Yahweh. 
The servant is going to be high and lifted up. But also, the servant is going to suffer. In Isaiah 53, it comes to this climax where the servant is going to be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So there's much more we can say, but we can say with confidence that the incarnation, the sufferings, and the glory of Christ are promised in the Old Testament. That John is not making them up. He's not inventing something new. He is showing the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. So you can say, great, Kendall, that's awesome. But what does this really mean? What does this really mean? Because we have to be very careful here. We have to be careful when we talk about the Incarnation. Because I would venture to say that no other doctrine has created more confusion or more error throughout the history of the Church than the doctrine of the Incarnation. Because we're tempted to say, oh, these things don't really matter. <laughs> They're no big deal. Maybe, maybe you've heard people say that. It doesn't really matter what I believe about Christ. As long as I'm worshiping God, it's not a big deal. But it would be sort of like if I was at my house, say my wife went on a trip, and some woman came to my house pretending or claiming to be my wife. I heard this analogy recently. If this woman pretended to claim to be my wife, if I didn't know my wife, know what she was like, know anything about her, know the true Emily, when an imposter comes, or someone claims to be my wife, I wouldn't know. How much more should we know our Savior? And so this is very important. It's very important that we understand what this incarnation means. That Paul says in the book of Galatians that if anyone comes to you with a different gospel or a different Christ, he's to be accursed. And so we must understand these things. It's very important, not only theologically, but in terms of practically, how we live the Christian life, how we view Christ, what is he, who is he, and what did he come to do. And so, we're going to get technical here for a minute, so just hold on with me. What happened in the Incarnation? We believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. So what is the Incarnation? Did the Son stop being God? No. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh, took on a human nature. How else can we say this? That it's not that the Son of God turned into a man as if divinity was subtracted from him, right? But that humanity was added to his divine nature. We sort of talked about this in our Confession of Faith this morning, that the Son of God, who is and continues true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man. That the incarnation is not one of subtraction, in which the divine nature is subtracted, but one of addition, in which the human nature is added to the person of the Son. And we've said it before, he became what he was not, human, never ceasing to be what he always was. He became what he was not, human, never ceasing to be what he always was, divine. And this can be hard for us, right? Because as we read the Gospels, as we 
read the Bible in general, we see both of these things. We see Christ's humanity and we see his divinity. We see that he is fully human. And we also see that he's fully divine. We see his weakness, his frailty. We see his sufferings. And yet at the same time, we see his glory, his power, and his authority. And so we have to ask ourselves these questions. What is going on in the incarnation? Does Jesus just get to pick when he's God and when he's man? Is it some sort of weird thing where he switches from time to time? Or is it a weird Frankenstein sort of thing? Where Christ, in his, you know, the incarnate Christ, he had a human body, but a divine mind. Or he had a human body, but a divine emotions. Or whatever, this sort of Frankenstein thing. So we have to think about this rightly. We have to confess this rightly. And we can say with confidence that Christ, in the incarnation, was fully God and fully man. One person, two natures. That he was fully God and fully man. So what do we mean when we say that Christ was fully man? What does it mean that the word took on flesh? That Christ had a real human body. He was not a floating spirit. He was flesh and blood. He had hands. He had feet. He had nerve endings. Right? He could feel pain. He felt hunger, Matthew chapter 4. He thirsted, John chapter 19. He got tired. He even slept. And we know that he even was a mortal human. Why? Because he really, truly died on the cross. It was not fake. It was not fabricated. It was a real death. He died in the grave for three days. And not only did he have a real body, but he had a real human spirit. That he had a limited human mind and human emotions. That we read in Luke chapter 2 that he grew in wisdom and knowledge. That he did not know the day or hour of his return. And that can trouble a lot of people, but he was human. He had limited human knowledge. He got angry at people's hardness of heart. He also experienced great joy in his incarnation, in his humiliation. He cried out in the garden, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. If it is possible, take this cup from me. That's the cry of a fully human, fully man. And he even on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. So we see here the full humanity of Christ, but yet he was without sin. So not only was Christ fully human, fully man, in taking on flesh, but he remained fully God. And we see this not only in John's prologue, right? He says explicitly, the word was God. <laughs> it really doesn't get clearer than that. The word was God. But he also proves this throughout John's Gospel. We see the seven miracles of Christ in John's Gospel, showing his power and authority over the created order, over the human body, God's power. We also see these seven I am statements of, God, of Christ. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. 
I am the light of the world. All these great statements about Christ and his divinity. And then, not many people know this, there's seven other I am statements where in the Gospel of John we see him say these statements that are not only I am the good shepherd, but I am full stop. What does he say to the Pharisees? Before Abraham was, I am. Full stop. He doesn't say anything after that. He just says, before Abraham was, I am. Why is that significant? Why am I even bringing that up? Because the translation of that in the Old Testament is the translation of the word for Yahweh. Yahweh. In Greek, it's ego I mean. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, ego me," he's saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. We sang about it this morning. He says in other places that I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones to stone him. They know what he's saying. They know he's claiming equality with God. We see his divinity unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration. He goes up to the mountain with his disciples, and his glory that was veiled is unveiled. And it says his clothes shone like the sun. Moses went up on the mountain, and only his face shone. Christ's clothes shone, revealing his full divinity. And then there's this very interesting account at the end of Christ's life, right before his death, after the Garden of Gethsemane, he's just been betrayed by Judas. And he's surrounded by all of his disciples. And these soldiers are approaching him. And he knows what they've come to do. And he says, whom do you seek? And they say, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say? He only says two words. I am. And what does John say? that they fell down and drew back. With two words, this Christ is able to knock soldiers onto their knees. That is no mere human. That is God. That is God. That is very and eternal God. And he would go on in his body to suffer on the cross to pay for our sins, to feel real human pain on the cross. He didn't have fake nerve endings. They were real. When they put the nails through him, he felt real pain. God did that. God took on flesh to feel pain. That is profound. But he wouldn't stay in the grave. He wouldn't stay dead. He would be resurrected with the same body that he had a resurrection body, this new creation. And he wouldn't stay on the earth. He would ascend into heaven, that Christ in heaven, his body is there. He didn't separate himself from his body. His body is in heaven right now. And he is currently sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for God's people. This is the person of Christ. And so as we come to try to contemplate what this means for us. What comfort is there in Christ's person? Why does it matter that he took on flesh? Why does John 1.14 matter to us? 
a couple things that we can say. First, we need to behold our two-natured Redeemer. We need to behold our two-natured Redeemer. That so often in the Christian life, we lose this concept of beholding something. That we're kind of caught up in Bible reading, which is a good thing. We get caught up in studying, and if I don't do that, then I'm not a good Christian. Christians for the first 1,300 years did not have their own personal Bibles, right? They didn't. There was no printing press. It was only at the church. And so, were they less Christian than we are because we have the Bible? No. It's a great blessing and a great benefit, and we should probably read our Bibles more than we do. We should study God's Word as a great benefit. But this idea of beholding is central to the Christian life. Beholding by faith. That we can hear what Christ has done in His person. That the Son of God took on flesh for us and for our salvation. That He was fully God and fully man. That He did this for us. That even though it's a mystery, at the same time it's the foundation of of all of our peace with God. Why can we have peace with God? The incarnation, suffering, and glory of Christ. This old theologian Gregory of Nazianza said this, He can only heal that which he assumes. He can only heal that which he assumes. Or to say it negatively, that which he does not assume or take on, he cannot heal or redeem. What does that mean? Sort of cryptic. <laughs> what does that mean? We are messed up. <laughs> We're really messed up. Not just our bodies. Many of us know our bodies fail us, not only through sickness and disease, but our own flesh fails us. If Christ didn't assume our human nature, our human body, he could not redeem it. He couldn't. We needed a better Adam, a second better Adam that could do what the first Adam failed to do. And not only are our bodies messed up, our emotions, our mind, our soul, our spirit is messed up. We have wrong views. We're sinful. And so if Christ did not assume a human nature with all its properties, he couldn't heal it. He couldn't redeem it. And so that's why Christ took on flesh to heal us. We need healing desperately. And so not only is this a source of profound peace with God, but it's a source of profound comfort. It's a source of profound comfort that we have a great high priest who took on flesh and knows what it's like to suffer. He's able to sympathize with our weakness. That in Hebrews chapter 4, we read about this. That me and you... We are flesh. We struggle against the flesh, right? We struggle with our children. <laughs> if we have them, can I get an amen? <laughs> right? We struggle with kids. We struggle in our marriages. We struggle in our jobs, with our spouse, with all these things. We're struggling. We struggle with our sin and suffering in this life. We struggle with trials and temptations. And we don't have a high priest who's not able to sympathize with us. We have one who is. And we read about this in Hebrews chapter 4. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one 
who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then he says this, Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That we have comfort for our weary, sin-sick souls. Why? Because we have a high priest that can sympathize with our suffering, sympathize with our weakness. It's not alien to him. He knows it intimately, and so he can better sympathize. What does Isaiah say? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking wax he will not quench, that he's tender with us. He's tender with us, that he comforts us, that he sees our suffering and our sin, and he is there for us, the gentle and lowly Christ, from heaven making intercession for us. So, this morning, we need to behold our two-natured Redeemer, that he was fully God and fully man, nothing less, 100%, and he did this for us and for our salvation. And we have a great high priest that can sympathize with our bodily weakness, with our emotional weakness. Whatever weakness we have, he can sympathize with it. But he was without sin. He was perfect. And so we don't just look to him as one that is just like us, but one that was better than us. Did what we failed to do. So we have a great hope this morning. So, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we're reminded that our Lord took on flesh, right? That he really, truly took on flesh. It wasn't fake, it was real. He felt real pain, real sorrow, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was spilled for us. And that we're reminded that this, these elements that are behind me, what we believe about the person of Christ affects how we see what we're about to do, right? We're not Roman Catholic. They believe that the elements behind me would magically turn into the real body of Christ. But that is to go against what we just talked about. That Christ's body was just like ours, right? It can't be <laughs> multiplied in a bunch of different places. It's just like ours, and his body is in heaven. And so we can say what Calvin says, that in the Lord's Supper, it's not that Christ comes down, but by the power of the Spirit. We ascend into heaven where he is by faith. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. That in the supper, the, our great shepherd feeds us spiritually. That he feeds us spiritually. And so we have a great hope this morning that when we come to the table by faith, repenting of our sin, that pardon has been made. That we have assurance of that pardon. And so... We're reminded of our Lord's words on the night he was betrayed. That he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup, the cup of a new covenant, <laughs> saying, This cup was poured out for you and for many. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That our Lord is not in the grave. He's not dead. He is surely alive. 
and he's coming again. And that's great hope for Christians like us. That it's amazing to think about. Why did Christ have to die? Why did he have to rise again? So that we might be risen again. Everything that he did was for us. If he didn't do it, then it's not for us. He did all of that for us. And so we have hope for us that when we die, when our loved ones die, that if their faith is in Christ, we will be resurrected again. And we look forward to that, even now, in part, in the supper, to something better. That this is just a picture, it's a shadow. There's kids that are <laughs> running around, you know? It's just a shadow, it's just a picture. It's meant to point our, our, our eyes upward and await the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. So, would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you that out of pure mercy and grace, you sent your Son to die on the cross for sinners like us, that by faith alone, not by working, not by working our fingers to the bone, not by what family we're born into, but by faith alone, we have peace with you. Because in faith, we are united to Christ and all his benefits. And everything that he won by faith is ours. And so we have a great hope this morning that even though in ourselves we feel our weakness acutely, we feel the sin that we commit, and it hurts us, and it pricks our hearts, and we don't want to do it, Lord. But we look to our risen Savior, who purchased perfect righteousness for us. And not only that, but on the cross, paid the penalty, took the curse that we deserved for our sin. He who knew no sin, became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Help us, Lord, this morning to see that double imputation that not only has our sin been taken from us, but the righteousness of Christ has been given to us by faith alone. Help us to trust in that, behold our risen Savior, and even in our trials and tribulations, we would look to our sympathetic high priest, who in every way was tempted, yet without sin. May we look to him by faith this morning, knowing this is only possible by the power of your spirit. Would you bless these common elements behind me for your purposes, and may we do this with both joy and rejoicing. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want to form a line and come as you're able, we'll take the elements together.
Every week we do this and we say to take the bread, to eat it, to remember, but also to believe by faith that Christ's body was broken so that our sin might be forgiven. same way we take the cup and we remember and we believe that Christ's blood, his perfect sinless blood was spilled to cover us, that all of our sins, past, present, and future might be washed white as snow. Remember that. Amen. One grace. If you want to stand with me this morning, we'll respond by singing the great song, Psalm 23.
in heaven, worshipped by angels, became poor for our sake, that we who are poor might become rich. And in the same way, we give a portion of what we've been given back to God, that it might be used for his glory and his kingdom. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for all that you've given us, that it's out of thankfulness that we are to respond in worship, not to earn anything, but because of what you've graciously given us. May you use these gifts and offerings for the glory of your kingdom and the growth of your kingdom, Lord. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.